Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the lead pastors here, and we're in week two of a series called Analog, in which we take a look at the early church. And so if you weren't here last week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch you up a little bit so that uh, hopefully that explains some of the stranger things that we're doing right now that we committed to do and why we committed to do those things. And so if we back up, uh, we're looking at the early church because, one, that's kind of where we landed after about four weeks of preaching on Jesus, recruiting his disciples. Uh, and giving these invitations out for people to follow him. But also, we're looking at the early church because we can all admit that various churches around the country and around the world do parts of worship and the worship experience in church differently. And so what we want to do is we want to go all the way back to the Bible, look at the early church. As people came to Christ, what did the formation of the church look like? What were the things that were foundational? What were the things that were absolutely critical so that we understand what has to happen? And then we can kind of take all the extra that we put on to church and categorize it in the right category, that maybe those are extra biblical, maybe those are traditions, maybe they're preference, maybe they're non-essential, uh, but, but what is essential? Because understanding what's essential is very, very important to this life following Christ and this, this life of pursuit as a disciple of Jesus. And so uh, we, we've been in Acts 2, 42 through 47, got this little chunk of scripture. We were in it last week. We're going to be in it again today. We're going to be in it again next week. And then we'll, we'll jump forward and ax another chapter or so for our fourth week of this series analog. So last week, as we read through this, we took a look at this phrase that said, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And so we see this thing that's happening, right? And let me explain right where we're at. Jesus has come back. He's shown himself to the disciples. They were waiting because he told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. So they're praying. The Holy Spirit comes down about a month later. So they're waiting and praying, waiting and praying, waiting and praying. It's their favorite things to do. That's why prayer meetings are always so full of people. And the Holy Spirit comes. 3,000 men come to Christ during a festival. So there's 120 disciples. Now there's 3,120 disciples. So if you've ever tried to herd cats, you can imagine what this is like, right? This is a logistical nightmare. Now, now, what do they do right after they all come to Christ? Well, one of the first things that we see in Acts 2 is they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And one of the ways they do that is they, they're meeting every week in the temple. So they have this large corporate gathering. So last week, we talked about the importance of the corporate gathering in the Christian church, why we do it, what we're doing when we do it, what the difference is between preaching and teaching, the various ministries of the word, and, and, and why they're different, and why they have a different role, and specifically, this top level of ministry of the word, this idea of preaching or proclamation of the gospel. Why we come together to do that, to be encouraged. And so we looked at some, some fundamental takeaways last week. One of those, I hope you remember this, if you're here, I hope you remember this. One of those was that at, at, at the level one ministry of the word, it's just one-on-one, -on -one, small encouragement that we just do all the time, centered around the word of God, you taking someone to coffee, encouraging them, them encouraging you. We don't need a program for that, right? No, seven of you. We don't need a program for that, Right? Right, because we know we're going to invite people in our lives and we're going to go encourage them. And we should, that, that's the call for all Christians all the time. Now, but the big gathering, level three ministry of the word, the proclamation of the gospel, is that when we gather together on a Sunday to make much of him, one of the things that we're doing is we're preparing ourselves for the proclamation of the word. So during the week and on the way in, no matter how bad the fight was on the drive to church, we plastered this smile on our finish. 
And when we walk in, what we're trying to do is get our heart to a point that we're elevating Christ, that he's more than we think he is, that, that, that we can get a, a, a glimpse that he's worth it. And so we're coming together and we're doing that. And here's the key. We are expecting God to pour out his spirit in a new and fresh and powerful way in the congregation, during the proclamation of the word, during the worship of him. And not only do we get to experience that and be encouraged, but we get to look around us and watch other people being moved and transformed by the spirit of God. And that encourages us. That gives us hope. That helps us continue to race the race. Amen? Okay, so we we did a couple things. We said, because in American culture, we have an attention problem, amen? Talked about this last week, that we've studied this, that since the year 2000 or so, that attention span has just continued to drop amongst Americans. So we're down to about 43 seconds. I get about 43 seconds of your attention, and it's like, squirrel! Actually, it looks more like this. Squirrel! Right? For all of the wonders of technology, millions and millions of dollars are poured into the development of mobile apps to get your attention. And they're fighting for it because your attention is worth money. So every app that you have on your phone is trying to notify you and alert you and buzz you and vibrate in your pocket and tell you you're missing out on something. You better pay attention to me. So if we're going to come in expectant to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. We're going to take this little bad boy. We're going to find that little power button. I'm going to, I'm going to turn it off for a little while. Because probably nothing that's so important that it can't wait until the end of this two to three hour sermon. <clears throat> Short one. We turn it back on later. And instead, we're going to go analog. I'm going to introduce you to the analog Bible for all of the wonder of the Bible app, which I use every day on my phone, just to, you know, every day. There's something amazing about just opening up the Word of God. So I ask you to bring this, start working in this. If you didn't bring it, it's fine. We've got them in the pews. You can just pull one out and we'll put it on the screen. We're going we're to work on this, okay? And we are going to try to commit to come into this space expectant to see the spirit of God move in ourselves and in other people waiting to watch him pour himself out in power to encourage us, to motivate us, to sustain us. Now, that's week one. Week two, we're right back in the same thing because there's more happening here in the early church. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul because they're seeing God move. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So he's moving in power. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now that is a really weird phrase because if you know who came to Christ at Pentecost, they did not have all things in common. In fact, they were not common at all. In fact, they spoke so many different native languages that the fact that they could even understand the apostles during Pentecost was a miracle. They're not common. They're very different. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, this is daily now, not once a week, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Okay, I want you to see something. Last week we talked about this corporate gathering is happening about once a week in the temple. But there's something else happening in here, which is day by day, daily, they're meeting in homes all over Jerusalem. They're meeting together. People who are different are getting together and, and they're breaking bread and they're, and they're encouraging one another. They're talking, they're teaching, they're praying. They're seeing miracles be done every single day. And what I want you to understand is that it's not just in 2023 that Pastor Daniel or Elder Don's trying to make this big deal about groups. I want you to understand if you go back to the very first thing that happens after Christ, there is a message here that says it's very possible that you need to consider that 90 minutes once a week is not enough. It's just not. Because that's not how it started. It didn't start with 90 minutes once a week. It started with day by day meeting in homes and meeting together. Both, not either or. And if you only get one, you're actually going to miss some stuff. Now, there's a word that's used twice in these verses that's translated differently depending on where it lands. In verse 42, it's translated as fellowship. And in verse 44, it's translated all things in common. And it's this word koinonia in Greek, koinonia. So in verse 42, it's koinonia. In verse 44, it's koine. It's the same root word. And it's this idea of commonness or commonality. Now, the interesting thing about them talking about this fellowship or this all things in common is that this word koine did not exist before the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost. This idea that the believers had all things in common, we don't see that present in Scripture. We don't even see that in the people of Israel. We don't see that in the Hebrew people. We don't see that in the Jewish people. We only see that once the Holy Spirit is pulled out. Because all of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, we don't see the gathering based on ethnicity. We don't see the gathering based on culture. We don't see the gathering based on political views. We don't see the gathering based on like what city you came from or who you're repping today. Like I, I will, I mean, look, if you come in here with a Clippers jersey, it's unholy, just leave. <laughs> but actually you don't see any of that. And yet they have all things in common. But from a, a secular worldview, we'd go, no, they have almost nothing in common. Incredibly different. So what is this talking about? What is this commonality? What is this fellowship that's mentioned here and then over and over and over again after this in the New Testament? Here's the first thing. This commonality, this fellowship, number one, comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, it says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the koine, the koinonia of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, so not the fellowship of the rings, right? Not the people who love comic books, not the sports fans, not the people who vote conservative or vote liberal. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's not a club. It's not an organization. It's not a religion. It's, it's not a set of traditions. Bono would say that religion is what you get when the Holy Spirit leaves the building. When there's no Holy Spirit, all you're left with is religion. A set of traditions. A set of weird behavioral model things that we check boxes. You, you can't just... You can't just throw out this idea 
that you're in a new family and there won't be an adjustment period, right? If you've ever experienced a blended family or had friends that experienced a blended family where two families come together, uh, there's a remarriage or there's stepkids or there's uh, adopted children and we put them all in one house, it's messy, amen? This is very messy, right? And what we're gonna see is that later in, in the formation of the church, not only here in Jerusalem, but in other places in the New Testament as it spreads, like it's gonna get really, really dicey. <laughs> There'll be a lot of struggles as this church tries to figure out what it looks like because they are been compelled to share with people that are different. But the answer is still gonna be the same. If you know Jesus Christ, if you know Christ, then you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have been indwelt with his spirit. And that will mean that we are being drawn together. And this is historically, we can go all the way back to Acts 2 and we can track this for thousands of years, no matter culture, no matter politics, no matter what nation state, no matter area, no matter era of history. When, when you put your faith in Christ, you're indwell with the Holy Spirit and you are drawn to other believers. That's why the church has withstood every war, every conflict, uh, it flourished in the middle of tribulation and martyrdom and persecution. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been sealed with the Spirit. And if you're listening to the Spirit, you're going to be drawn together to other Christians. That's what the Spirit is doing. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Now, this koinonia, this commonness or this fellowship... Not only does it come from the Holy Spirit, but it is centered around the idea of sharing. Okay, so every time that we see the word koinonia or koine used in the New Testament, it is always going to be around two concepts, one of two concepts. Either the, uh, the sharing of something with someone else, so a resource or what have you, or sharing in something that someone else is experiencing. So if it's sharing with someone, It'll be sharing your resources, your, your, your time, your money, your energy, your gifts, your influence, your house, your possessions. You're going to be sharing that with someone else. That, that's part of this, this commonality, this koinonia. And the second thing that we'll see is it's either going to be that or it'll be sharing in someone else's experience. So uh, when, when someone else is grieving, we're grieving with them because our lives are so intertwined because of the work of the Spirit that when they go, go through something, we go through it. When they rejoice, we rejoice. When they celebrate, we celebrate. When they grieve, we grieve. When they're hurting, we hurt. Romans 12, 15 and 16a would say it this way. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Harmony. We live so closely together that we can experience with each other what the other person is experiencing in life. The idea of sharing. Now, uh, Hebrews 10, 19-25 is a big passage that will essentially tell us this about koinonia. It will explain the motivation that pulls us together of why we would do that, and then it will apply that and tell us how to do that. Hebrews 10, 19-25 says it this way. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... This is our access to God because of Christ. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, 
There's a lot of imagery in here. If you're confused and you don't understand the Bible, the Jews were not given access to God. Only the high priest could go past the curtain that separated the place, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. No one else was allowed to go in there lest they die. But all of a sudden now, when Jesus died and when he conquered sin and when he conquered death, that curtain that separated that space tore and gave us access to God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us now, because we have access, draw us near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us, so because of this truth, Because of this access, because of this new identity in Christ, because of what he's done for us and what he's doing for us, let us then, our application, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What the early church is doing in Acts 2, automatically, because the Holy Spirit has come and moved in power, not that long after, Hebrew, the, the writer of Hebrews and the author of some of these other books that we'll read has to go and remind Christians, by the way, do not neglect to meet together as is already the habit of some. I'm glad that in 2023 we fixed that and, and no one misses church anymore. No one misses small group anymore. Everyone's totally connected and not in the fringe and trying to stay isolated as Christian. It's not a modern problem. It's a problem all the way back here because they have to be reminded. We haven't even finished the canonization of Scripture. We haven't even finished the Holy Scriptures and we already have Christians that have walked away from what they're doing in Acts 2 and started to neglect meeting together. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us intentional. Let us be intentional about putting mental power, some like a real idea. Like like let me let me brainstorm how I can stir you up. Like let me put some real energy and effort into figuring out how to stir you up to love and good works. Like I'm not haphazardly, casually, accidentally encouraging you. Will that happen sometimes? Sure. But that's not what it says. It says, put some work in, dog. Work at it. Put some energy toward it. How can I stir this person up? How can I encourage you? Hebrews is going to tell us that because Jesus made a way, because Jesus is enough, because Jesus is in in charge, let's hold fast to him and let's encourage one another. Now, how big of a deal is it to get intimately engaged in the body of Christ. Well, listen to this quote. This is John Wesley. John Wesley, if you don't know John Wesley as a church father, he was an Anglican clergyman, but he was also an evangelist and he was the founder or one of the two founders of the Methodist movement in the church of England. So kind of a big deal. He said, there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. There's not, so it doesn't say there's nothing more unchristian than a Christian that struggles. That's actually pretty Christian. He didn't say there's nothing more unchristian than a Christian that has sin in their life. Actually, that's pretty Christian too. He said there's nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian who's removed themselves from the community of Christ and sat on the edges. 
in order to really understand the small gathering, the tiny gathering, the, 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 this thing that's happening day by day in Acts 2, and that we're being encouraged to do throughout Scripture after that, what it looks like to, to, to encourage one another, engage one another, stir one another up, be devoted to this fellowship. Oh, these are all commands in the Bible. I want to I pick apart what's happening in this small group. Before there was ever a small group program, there was a small group program. You, you hear what I'm saying? No one had to call it a program. But there's something happening here. It's critical to understand what it is. Because if you don't understand what's at the center of it, you're going to get it wrong. Or you're thinking you're doing it and you're wondering why it's empty. As I've been, I've been reading, in fact, over probably the last six weeks, I came across this word in the Bible, in a, in a section of scripture, and it, it struck me because I, I, I think I've always misunderstood the word. And I, I found it in another scripture, and then I found it in another scripture, and so I found it in four or five different places, and it didn't make sense where I saw it. So then I had to dig a little bit, and it's this word hospitality, And I gotta explain why I misunderstood it. So, so it's translated hospitality in, 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 in English versions, right? It, the actual Greek word is kind of hard to say. It's philoxenon, uh, philoxenon, or philoxenoi, uh, depending on the, the tense. And it's translated hospitality, but the problem for me is that I, I came from a real small conservative church background and hospitality is the word that we use to describe the person that ladled the punch out into the punch cups during potlucks. Nobody else? Just me. Okay, just me. If you're, if you're really Baptist, I mean, if, if your Baptist roots go deep, like deep, you had a lot of potlucks and when you're poor, and when I say we were poor, we were po. Po is when you're so poor you can't uh, uh, like even afford the last O-R in the word. That po. And when you po, you don't have soda, because that's expensive, you bougie people. <laughs> you have punch. And good Baptist punch is always red. I don't know why. <laughs> you have punch everywhere. And, uh-oh, man, that one hurts. That, that, that hurts right here, right here. Okay, when you have punch, the per I don't know why, but the person that ladles the punch is the hospitality person, okay? So in my mind, when I read hospitality, I read, oh yeah, the punch lady or the punch guy. That's totally wrong. That's not what it means. That's not what the Greek word means at all. That, that word, philoxenoi, is used though in 1 Timothy 1.8 and in 1 Timothy 3.2. And hospitable and hospitality is a prerequisite to be an elder or a pastor. And I was like, well, that can't make sense. You have to ladle, punch. To... No, no, that can't work. Why is it in there? Why is it a prerequisite to be a shepherd, a pastor, an overseer? That's, that's just kind of weird. Is it, are you supposed to be nice? I don't get what does hospitality mean? And then not only is it there as prerequisites, but then I got the first Peter 4, 9 and listen to what it says here. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Wait a minute. It's gotta be more than ladling punch because who's grumbling about having punch? And then it's again in Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Okay, why is it a requirement for leadership in the church? And why is it a command to all believers? And why do they have to tell us to not complain about it? Philo, 
This Greek word is actually just two words smashed together. That's a lot of Greek. Philo means brotherly love. Brotherly love. And xenoi means stranger. Brotherly love for strangers. Brotherly love for strangers? That's hospitality? Yes. Tim Challies uh, says this word particularly indicates a love for strangers. Theologian Alexander Strock explains by saying, hospitality is a concrete expression of Christian love and family life. It's an important biblical virtue. What's happening in Acts 2? 3,000 men come to Christ. They're all, all, most of them are out of town. They were there for a festival. All of a sudden they come together. They become this new family, this new body of Christ, but a lot of them don't even have a place to live. They're being invited into the homes of people that live in Jerusalem. They're, being, they're eating together. They're sleeping in their houses. They're living together just all of a sudden. And they're all strangers. Strzok would say giving oneself to the care of God's people means sharing one's life and home with others. An open home is a sign of an open heart and a loving, sacrificial, serving spirit. A lack of hospitality, opening up one's home and life and sharing, is a sure sign of selfish, lifeless, loveless Christianity. Hospitality is a tangible, outward display of godly character. One of the first things that the early church shared was their homes. They invited people that were previously strangers into their house, into their life. So a requirement, according to the Bible, for leaders and the command to all believers is hospitality, opening up your home and life and sharing. But in the early church, they were doing this without prompting. No one had to tell them. They just did it. The only thing that compelled them was the Holy Spirit. Why is this so important? Why is this so critical? Here's why. Follow me. This is, this is very important. When we let people into our homes, we are proving to them that we will let them into our lives. When we let people into our homes, we're proving to them that we will let them into our lives. We're putting our money where our mouth is. Christian fellowship is centered around serving others and being vulnerable. We serve and we open our homes and our lives. I, I never understood as a kid why my dad would invite whoever was new at church to lunch on Sunday afternoon. And most of the time, it was someone who was homeless. And so here I am as a kid, and I don't know if you know, but it's really hard to eat when someone hasn't showered in two weeks. But that was our life. We also only got soda once a week. We had one two liter of soda. We only opened it on Sunday afternoons. Now there's someone taking the soda. Come on, dad. What was he doing? He's obeying the Bible. He's opening up his home, opening up our life. There's nothing wrong with a Sunday school class or a Bible class or, or groups that meet on campus or in a park. But hear me, when I open up my home with all the, let's be honest about opening your home. You open up your home, particularly as you're, you're, you're younger or if you have kids at home or anything, you open up your home and like what you're, uh, it, 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 maybe exposing that you're a little bit anxious about is like, when I open up my home, like they're going to see the dirty laundry that I didn't get done. And they might open the closet where I shoved everything to make it look clean. And they're going to see the chipped paint and the unfinished home improvements and the tile project I started two years ago. What am I doing? I'm forcing myself to be vulnerable. I'm forcing myself to live an authentic life. And 
not put up a veneer, a wall, pretend I'm someone I'm not, just come in. If in the large gathering that we talked about last week centers around the proclamation of the word, so this is the center of the large gathering is the pulpit because that's where the proclaiming of the word is happening, then the center of the small gathering is the kitchen table. The center of Christian community in, in a small setting is the kitchen table. And it's what we see in Acts 2, and it's what we see in this word hospitality over and over and over again. Inviting someone into your home. In Acts 2, this, they're gathering people who have only been united because of the Holy Spirit pouring out on them at Pentecost. They're all different people. They're very diverse. They were strangers before Jesus. Now they're family because of Jesus, and they're bringing them into their homes. When, when I was in college and I was far from God and I sort of inadvertently stumbled into this tiny little church of about 30, 35 people, uh, very unintentionally, did not want to be there, but stumbled in anyways, just felt like I was drawn to it. I couldn't escape it. And the pastor there within weeks found I was in need of a place to live and invited me to rent a room in his home. And I lived in his home for a year. Now, let me be very, very clear. Uh, I did not do anything to earn it. I was not very, un, uh, very lovable, not very dependable. It was not the person you would want to open your home to. Invited me right in. And, and, and later in my college career, when I needed a place to live, one of the, the members of the church found out I was unneeded, invited me to come and stay at his house. I stayed at his house for over six months. Not because I earned it. Not because I was very lovable. <laughs> These were men being obedient to scripture, having the heart of Christ and inviting me into their lives and into their homes as a stranger. There's a long history in the Bible, all the way back into the Old Testament, of welcoming strangers by making them a meal, inviting them into a meal. In fact, if you go all the way back and you begin to just kind of track through stories in the Old Testament, when, when angels often show up in these various stories in the Old Testament, the first thing they do is they're, they're like, let me make you a meal, which I always find to be very interesting because they didn't have microwaves back then. You know what I mean? Like, like someone shows up and they're like, wait, don't leave. Let me make you a meal. Like, like it's going to be a fast thing. And they're like, let's go prepare the goat. I'm like, first you got to catch the goat. I mean, this, is, this sounds like a six-hour process. And yet they're like, no, 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 man, you can't leave. I got to honor you by bringing you into what little I have and sharing it with you. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that even in the commands from God uh, to the people as they come out of Egypt about how they treat sojourners and strangers and people from foreign lands, setting a precedent so that we'll see what Jesus is going to do later. Jesus has this ragtag group of disciples and uh, they followed him through, you know, most of these important moments in his ministry. But the night before Jesus would die, the last time that he's going to have here on earth before he would go to the cross, you'd think, man, if, if ever you got to spend your time really wisely, it's going to be that those last moments. You know what he does? Even though Jesus has no earthly home, he doesn't own a home, Son of man has no place to lay his head. He gets a room. He invites his disciples in and he washes their feet. Most important thing he's going to do. He washes, he serves them. He washes their feet. 
And then he prepares a meal and he shares a meal with them. He shows them hospitality. He shows us what intimate Christian relationship looks like. He doesn't just invite them in because they're his disciples. He washed Judas' feet knowing he would be betrayed. When we meet together during the week, when we share a meal together, when we observe communion together, if you've never done the Lord's Supper in a small group, it's, I encourage you. In fact, I'm gonna encourage you to do that as a next step. It's very powerful. We're following the example, not just that we see in Acts 2 in the early church, we're following Jesus' example of how he would use his time. If we go back to... The book of Isaiah is filled with prophecies uh, about what would come in the future, about the Messiah, about how he would come. There's all these different, symb- uh, a lot of symbology and, and symbolism in, in Isaiah, but, but there's a really cool picture of heaven that we see all the way back in Isaiah. And the thing about heaven is we're really messed up. Like our ideas about heaven are just really secular overall, right? Like, I don't know why, but most of my generation's view of heaven somehow involves clouds and chubby babies with harps and wings. Like, I don't know where any of that really came from except for maybe chubby. Us Americans got the chubby right. It's not a dad bod. It's a father figure. But none of the rest of that's in the Bible. There's some pretty cool stuff about heaven in the Bible. Let me read you some of it. It's in Isaiah 25. It says this. On this mountain... The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. It's not clouds and harps we're going to see in heaven. It's a kitchen table. If we flip forward to that last supper I was talking about with Jesus in Luke 22, 15 and 16, as he's participating in the Passover and he's sharing the the supper with his disciples, he says this to them in verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying there's going to be a point where I eat again. But it's going to be a different kitchen table that we're sitting at. Jesus is going to drink wine and eat again? Is that what you're telling me? Yes, that's actually what I'm telling you because that's what the Bible says. If we go all the way to Revelation 19, and the apostle John is describing this vision of heaven that he was given when he's out on the island of Patmos, he says this. The angel said... To me, this is verse 9, Revelation 19. Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Hear me, someday Jesus will come again. And he will right every wrong, and he will wipe away every tear. And the place that he has been preparing for us in heaven will be ready. And if you've called Jesus your Lord, then we will be sitting around a kitchen table and we will be laughing 
and we will be praising him and we will be feasting and the new wine will be flowing and not even the Baptists will be mad. I'm a Baptist, I can tell that joke. When we meet together in small, intimate settings around, often around kitchen tables and share a meal together, we open ourselves and our homes up to strangers because that's a picture of Jesus and that's a picture, picture of heaven. We were God's enemies. We were strangers to him, dead spiritually, but God. Being rich in grace, raised us from the dead, died on a cross, resurrected before us, and went to prepare a meal in his own home for you and I. Strangers before Jesus, family because of Jesus. Do you see it? Do you understand why you would never want to do this thing called church once a week for an hour or two? Church is not this building. It's not even this congregation on a Sunday morning. Church is the body of Christ expressed in various types of community, one being this large gathering that we're doing today, but another being how we do life together vulnerably day by day around kitchen tables all over this county. And if you only get the corporate gathering, you're just missing out. There's so much more. Because Jesus is so much more. And when we open up our lives centered around Christ, we are reminded that he is coming again. And it's a picture of what heaven will look like. So I have an invitation for you today. Um, I'm going I'm to talk about some next steps that I think will really encourage you. And then in just a minute, after we have a, an opportunity to pray for you and pray for those that, that need prayer and talk to you, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. That way you know exactly what to do in your small groups and can do it together. <laughs> Tricked you. All right. Couple next steps. Number one, if you're not in a group, when you walk out of here, find someone in a red shirt. Find uh, someone at the wall. Find Karen who sits out there ready to connect you to small groups. I think we have about 30, 35 small groups. We have new small groups that are starting. We have men's groups. We have women's groups. We have co-ed groups. We're starting two new recovery groups specifically for people with hurts and habits and hangups. We've got groups for everybody. We've got groups for you. So if you're not in a group, get in a group. If you are in a group already, I want you to think about having a meal together to intentionally show hospitality. And maybe that means opening up your home occasionally to the group. Maybe you, you start moving that group around to different people's homes so you have an opportunity to be Christ for them and to show hospitality by meeting around your kitchen table. Maybe that means opening up in your group and being more honest and vulnerable about how life is going within the group. And lastly, I want you to consider observing the Lord's Supper in your group. I think you will find it highly encouraging. There's a reason we're commanded to remember the Lord in this fashion, like we're going to do in a few minutes. It's powerful. It's powerful. Now, I want to pray for you, and then I want to invite you to come forward. If you have never met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never put your saving faith in Jesus, you've never called him your Lord, we, we're going to have a prayer team. We're going to have elders and people that would love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to take your, your next step with him, what it looks like to, to follow him in baptism, which is a public profession of faith. It's like going Facebook official with Jesus, but it's wetter. 
We want to pray for you if you need prayer for any reason. James 5 would tell you that if you're hurt, if you are in need of prayer, that you would seek out the elders of the church and have them to pray for you because there's power in the prayer of a righteous man. We want to pray for you. We want to pray with you. We want to pray over you because we love you. And we cherish the opportunity to pray for you. So up here, as we uh, play this song, before we start working on the communion elements, we're going to just take some time to consider how the Lord is stirring us and others. And we're going to have our prayer team and elders available for you. Let me pray over you. Father God, we thank you that when we were far from you, when we were dead spiritually, when we were your enemies, when we were strangers and not family, you came for us. You chased us down. You loved us when we were unlovable. God, I thank you that you did not count my rebellion as something that was permanent, but rather you outlasted me. God, I thank you for saving me. I thank you for the way you've saved those here. God, I ask that you allow us, God, to surrender our hearts to you and to your work and your spirit as he knits us together in Christian fellowship, God, breaking down walls that are in between us, intentionally finding ways to encourage one another, spend time with one another, live vulnerable and open lives that show hospitality to each other, God. Help us to grow closer, to know you better, and to love each other more deeply. God, for those here hurting that need prayer, would you motivate them and compel them to leave their seats and come and pray with us? Come and share with us and do life with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You move as the Lord leads you. We'll take a few minutes.